This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan, and today is Sunday, November the 13th, 2022. Thanks again for joining with me. I want to start with this this great scene from the original Star Wars movie, right? Episode 4, A New Hope, if you are a Star Wars geek like I am. But it's this, the part of the story where, you know, Luke and the crew, they've arrived on the Death Star. They've discovered that Leia is being held captive there. And Luke is trying to, conv- to convince Han to help him rescue her. And Han's response is basically like, that's a really bad idea. Why would I risk my skin for her, by the way, the, I've got a link to the clip, um, a, a YouTube version of the clip um, on my, where I have my sermon resources on, on the website. You can go check that out if you want. But uh, as the scene unfolds, Luke replies to Hans. Again, Hans like, why, why, would I, why would I do this? And Luke says, Han, she's rich. Han says, rich? Uh-huh. Rich, powerful? Listen, if you were to rescue her, the reward would be... Han says, well, what? Luke says, well, it would be more wealth than you can imagine. And in this famous line, Han replies, I don't know. I can imagine quite a bit. And Luke says, well, you'll get it. Han says, I better. Luke says, you will. And minutes later, we see that Han is all in. Right? My childhood space hero joined the rebellion, was conned into joining the rebellion, for the promise of cash. You know, studying for today's, me- for today's message, I was thinking about that scene and how Luke here is a good metaphor for a distorted theology that is so prevalent in evangelical Christianity. Right? The distortion that if we're just all in, that we can count on God to bless us, you know, with health, wealth, to meet all of our circumstantial needs. I can envision the conversation going something like this. Um, If you imagine this scene between, let's say, um, a preacher who's representing this misunderstanding of of the gospel of the New Testament, and he's sharing this with, let's call it a seeker, a person wrestling with maybe placing their faith in Christ. And so the seeker says, no, why should I follow Jesus? I like being in control. Why should I surrender to Jesus? Well... One reason, he's rich. Rich? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, rich, powerful. Listen, if you were to follow Christ, the reward would be, well, it would be what? Well, how about the cattle on a thousand hills? God's got them. They can be yours, right? God will meet all your needs according to his riches. I mean, just trust him and the reward would be more than you could ask or imagine. I don't know. I can imagine quite a bit. Well, you'll get it. Just do everything right, and you'll be blessed. I better be. You will. And then hushed under his breath, the, the, the prosperity teacher thinks, well, and if you don't, well, that just means the problem is with you. You just must not be deserving. Okay, guys, if my sarcasm there is a little biting, I just, I got to confess, it's because I have witnessed firsthand, multiple times, just how dangerous it can be to claim promises that God hasn't made. You see, bad theology isn't just disillusioning or pride-fueling, and it's both of those. 
But when bad theology fails in the midst of people's very real lives, it can be utterly devastating. It can be life-destroying. But you see, here's the thing. In our passage today, Paul not only proclaims that the believer has received God's riches, but he says that these are God's glorious riches, riches that are truly beyond anything that we could ask or imagine. And this is what Paul is going to reveal, or rather, what he's going to show us that God, what God has revealed about the glorious riches of the fullness of the Word of God. But before we get into that part of the text, I want to start by circling back to where we wrapped up last week. It's something that I just didn't have the time to get into. So if you have your Bible or if you've opened up the scripture link on the website, um, I'm in Colossians chapter 1, this is where we are, in verse 23, right, just right where we ended up last week. By the way, if you missed last week's message, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But here Paul says, he says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Okay, then he says, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. All right, so here's what I just wanted to cover. Paul says the gospel has been proclaimed, um, and actually the a more direct translation of the Greek is that it was proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Guys, that is a huge claim. And Paul knew very well that within the expanse of the Roman Empire that there were people who hadn't yet heard the gospel, much less the entire world, the entire planet. So what did he mean? You know, one theory, there's several theories on this. One is, is the idea of general revelation, right? Like we see in Romans 1. The idea that God's power and divine nature are clearly seen by all people in creation. Right? In other words, a person can't say, I didn't know God existed, because creation is continually crying out, God exists. But this probably isn't what Paul means here, because he clearly refers to the gospel, the revelation of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And this is not something that is discernible from just observing creation. See, more likely here is an image that we could consider from Paul's own day, right? The image of a ruler or an emperor, maybe the emperor of Rome, issuing a decree. Think about this. The emperor gives a decree, and while the decree is fully stated, right, fully proclaimed from the beginning, it's going to take significant time for the emperor's messengers to deliver and proclaim the decree throughout the empire. So through that lens, we see Paul saying, the gospel has been decreed to all of creation. And then he goes on to say, and I am one of those messengers. I am one of those servants that is now making this message known to you. And this brings us to verses 24 through 27. And friends, I just have to say, about 25 years ago, someone showed me this passage, pointed this passage out to me. And guys, it changed the trajectory of my life. You know, perhaps only second to Galatians 2.20, Colossians 1.27 has been the passage embodying the scriptural truth at the core of my entire sense of my pastoral calling. And it's the stunning, because it just is, the stunning New Testament message of God's grace and of the believer's union with Christ. So again, you got your Bible there. 
Read with me as we look at Colossians 1, verses 24 through 27. And Paul says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Some translations say to the saints. That's all believers. And then Paul says, verse 27, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, friends, Paul begins his thought here by giving us a glimpse into his own situation, more so into his heart. He tells the Colossian believers that his role in their lives has been something of great cost to him, but something that has brought him great joy. Verse 24 says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. This text is difficult to adequately translate into English. And at first reading, it can be a little confusing. I mean, what does Paul mean when he says that he is filling up or experiencing what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction or Christ's sufferings? First of all, the context and virtually all of Paul's writings will make it clear that nothing was lacking in Christ's sacrifice at the cross, right? That is not what Paul's saying. You know, and as we've seen, verses 15 through 19, right, that we covered a few weeks ago, right here in Colossians 1, this is one of the New Testament's greatest proclamations of Christ's total victory and absolute sufficiency for the reconciliation of all things to God. You see, the idea that Paul expresses here is very personal and unique to him. Basically, he says that it gives him great joy to suffer on behalf of the church, right, the body of Christ, because his suffering may deflect or possibly even reduce the suffering of the church itself. Right, you got to press into this and really kind of read it and study about it. But what we see Paul saying is something like, you know, suffering will come to us as we live out our faith in Christ, but I'm hoping to reduce your suffering, you, the body of Christ, by taking this suffering onto myself. And even though this comes at great cost to me, it gives me even greater joy. You see, for Paul, suffering wasn't some kind of badge of honor or evidence of his righteousness. Right? His suffering was the result of his love for the church. And his love for the church was itself an expression of his love of God. You know, the New Testament writers, Paul, but not only Paul, they speak a lot about suffering and persecution and how for some believers, this will be inevitable. But this teaching about Christian suffering has been distorted over the centuries. You know, the idea, it's the idea that when things don't go the way we want, we may say, well, <laughs> things aren't going the way I want. People don't like what I like because I'm a Christian. And therefore, people are against me, right? They're persecuting me. Well, friends, that at times may happen, but it might also be because, you know, people may be against you because you're being obnoxious. 
You know, it can also be tempting to view suffering as a source of identity, right? Well, we will see people frame their whole lives in terms of adversity against the, you know, air quotes here, enemies of God. And therefore, if you disagree with them or against them in any way, then you are persecuting them. And you are, in fact, against God. But a good corrective here we find in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm just going to read a few excerpts out of this, starting around verse 12. And this is what we read. Peter here says, live such good lives among the pagans, right? Pagans is just a word that means all unbelievers, right? The, the world around us. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, right? For the gospel's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should hear that. It is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. In other words, guys, God will never lead us to violate his nature in order to accomplish his purpose. Peter continues, and he says, Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. And remember, who was the emperor when Peter wrote this? It was Nero for crying out loud. And he goes on to say that even when we live this way, there will be times that suffering may come. And then in verse 19, he says, for it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure that? But if, you, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, that is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then Peter describes our example with Jesus. And he says, For he committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And so when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Friends, we need to hear this. When our lives, our words, and our actions express the love, the goodness, the patience, the integrity, and the kindness of God, even when we are different from the surrounding culture, this is attractive to most people. Now, Scripture does say, yes, at times there will be opposition and even suffering. It may come. And when it does, don't respond with anger defensiveness, and all-out efforts to defeat your enemies. Rather, respond by loving your enemies, right? listening, seeking to understand, seeking to extend the God-given human dignity that is present in every person, right? even when it is hard, because often it is hard. Respond to adversity by doing good, by being kind. Respond by bearing up with humility and joy not with anger or fear or retribution. But most, most importantly, respond by placing your hope and your trust in God, not in human power. 
And so when Paul says, it gives me joy to suffer on behalf of Christ's body, which is the church, what he is leading to is what he's going to say next. And so now with God's message to the church in mind, Paul says, and this is verse 25, I have become its, the church's servant, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Now that is from the NIV. We also see that phrase, the word of God in its fullness, translated to fully carry out or to completely preach the word of God. The King James Version speaks of to fulfill the word of God. In the message, Eugene Peterson translates Paul saying or paraphrases Paul saying, I am laying out the whole truth. But however it's translated, you can sense the energy here in Paul's voice. It's like he's saying, there's something, guys, that I'm about to say. And if I didn't say it, the gospel would be incomplete. In fact, what I'm about to say is the completeness of the gospel. Everything God has been doing and saying for all generations has been working toward, pointing toward this glorious truth. For this truth is something that up to now has been a mystery. In God's timing, it has been kept hidden but it's not hidden anymore. Yes, it's a mystery, but it's a mystery that has now been revealed. Verse 26 says, The word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Okay, just a few things here. Stay with me. Because the Colossian church was predominantly Gentile, but it also included Jews. And the false teaching that was threatening the church, to some degree, asserted that it wasn't enough to just trust in Jesus, that these new believers also had to go back and take on the law and the traditions of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament. Right? That's one of, the, one of the big theories about what the Colossian heresy was. So, when Paul speaks of the mystery that God kept hidden for ages and generations, he's referring to the history of God's work through Israel. You know, there was something God was doing, working, to, working toward all along through his people, the Israelites, through the law and through the prophets. But even the prophets weren't able to understand it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says this. This is actually verses 10 and 11 of 1 Peter 1. And he says, concerning this salvation, right, what God did in Christ, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently, and with the greatest care, trying to figure out, right, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Right, that's an amazing passage. Because Peter is saying that all these prophets of the Old Testament, they had glimpses. They sensed that God was working toward something, but they couldn't yet see it. It was hidden. It was a mystery. And guys, I, from our perspective today, it's hard for us to grasp the significance of this. But a huge part of this mystery was that in Christ, that God would fully incorporate the Gentiles, right, the unclean others, all those who were different, that he would incorporate them fully into God's work of salvation. Again, we can see that the prophets had a glimpse of this in what Isaiah writes in one of his messianic prophecies. This is actually Isaiah 49, verse 6, where we read, 
It is too small a thing for you, referring to the Messiah, to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back those of Israel that I have kept. For I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see, speaking of the coming Messiah, Israel says, or Isaiah says, it's not enough for the Messiah just to restore Israel. You will be a light to the Gentiles, that this salvation will reach the ends of the earth. And friends, some 700 years later, Paul would write to the Colossians that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Christ, the Messiah, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. But friends, what Isaiah didn't expect, what he couldn't see, and what no one saw coming was that in Christ, both the Jews and the Gentiles, right, the insiders and the outsiders, would be equal, sharers together in the grace of God, with no barriers separating them. In Ephesians 2, Paul says this, For he, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups one, Jews and Gentiles, has made these two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. For his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Oh, my friends, think about how we can apply that into our world today. But Paul doesn't stop there. Going on in Ephesians 3, I'm going to read here verses 2 and 3 and then verse 6. And Paul says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. And then verse 6, Paul says, This mystery, this mystery, is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Make it members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul here is crying out. You don't have to go back into the law. You don't have to take on the crushing burden of religious performance because everything that God was working to say, he has now fully said. And the fullness of what God has to say is Jesus. Just a quick note here, the word we see disclosed, some translate, you know, the mystery that has been revealed. The underlying Greek word here has the sense of being manifested, right? God's revelation, it's not just another sacred text. What God has to say has come to us, taken on humanity. The word has been made flesh and we have seen him. And this word, the fullness of what God has said in Christ it can only be described as being God's glorious riches. Now we're into verse 27, where Paul says, To them, to the Lord's people, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. All right, I got to pause here. My friends, this is dramatic. Paul is building toward a climax here. He's about to lay out the big reveal. And he says, church, believers, 
God has chosen to reveal to you this mystery so that through you, this mystery may be revealed to all the Gentiles, right? to all people. And this mystery is nothing less than the glorious riches of God. Friends, when, when we read Paul's letters, we see this sometimes that Paul is prone to superlatives. I mean, he just piles them on at times, right? He uses emotional language. Paul describes God, God's goodness, what God has done and what God continues to do in almost overwhelming terms. It's like Paul is just straining to come up with words that begin to describe the magnitude of what God has done the magnitude of what is now true of us in Christ. See, when Paul told the Philippian church that my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches in his glory in Christ Jesus, right? that's an amazing statement. But he wasn't here talking about the temporary external needs that are common to all humanity. I mean, we all have these circumstantial needs, and God knows this. But the great promise the glorious riches that every believer has fully and already received. Now, friends, it's far greater, and it's something that is always present, no matter what a given day may bring. I mean, consider what we see in Ephesians 3 again. This is verses 14 through 21. This is one of Paul's great pastoral prayers. And he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, there's that phrase again, out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. His spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And then Paul prays. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And friends, so to the Colossians, and now to us, Paul proclaims the great hope of the gospel, the glorious riches of the gospel. And he says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Friends, Imagine for a second that you're one of those Colossian believers. I mean, your faith is strong, but it's very simple. From our perspective today, we would say their faith was almost primitive. And there are teachers in your midst who are saying something like, listen, if you really want to be right with God, if you really want the best God has for you, here's a list of everything that you have to do to get to God. Right? And if you do all this really well, if you are one of the star elite performers, then God will really love you. Then he will bless you. And in response, Paul says, no, you don't have to perform to get to God. For God has come to you 
In Christ, God has not only come to you, but his presence fully now dwells in you. You know, from your perspective, you may think that you've given your life to God, but the truth is that in Christ, God has given his life to you. Friends, this is why Paul could proclaim throughout his letters that in Christ, the believer is holy, blameless, free from accusation, righteous, God's workmanship, and dearly loved, that you are the beloved of God. Because I want to take this even one step deeper. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, we see that the believer is both in Christ and that Christ is in the believer. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. And these two concepts reinforce each other, but they're not exactly the same. So let's talk about this just for a minute. First, we have the hope, this amazing New Testament hope, that we are in Christ. As believers, as disciples of Jesus, that we are in Christ. And friends, this is what is now true of us as disciples of Jesus. Now, if you go to the website, you'll see I've got a lot of scriptures listed. I encourage you to go and read all of them. And if you do, you're going to hear them proclaim that in Christ, you have received the gift of eternal life. In Christ, there is now no condemnation. That we are all members of Christ's body. And in Christ, we belong to each other. That in Christ, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For we, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we are all children of God through faith. In Christ, we have God's wisdom and we are righteous, holy, and redeemed, that in Christ we are now new creations, and in Christ we possess the peace of God, even peace that transcends our understanding, and this is a peace that will guard our hearts and our minds. My friends, this is incredible. This is overwhelming, but it's still not the full story. For not only are we in Christ, with everything that means, but we also possess the hope that Christ is in us. I've been trying to imagine or come up with a metaphor, a story that starts to capture this. And here, here's the best that I've done so far. I want you to imagine that you were an orphan and you've been adopted into a new family. You know, the, the image of adoption is something we see a lot in the New Testament. Now, you're not a second-class child, right? You are a full member of the family as if you always had been, as if you had been born into the family. And now as a member of the family, there are things that are true of you that weren't true of you before. You have a new name. You have a new identity with deep meaning. You have new brothers and sisters, a new family. You have a new inheritance, both for the future and for the present. And most importantly, you have a new mom and dad. And everything about the family, the life of the family, flows from them. But in this scenario, your new mom and dad are distant. You know them, right? Your life has radically changed because of them. But it's almost like you, mo you know about them. Because this is where the metaphor breaks down. Because what Paul, what God is saying to us here, is that in our story, the mom and dad, right, are the Father and the Son, and they are not distant. 
Not only are we in them, but in a mystery that no metaphor can fully capture, they are in us. By the Spirit, God in Christ has placed his very life inside us, and he dwells with us in union with us always. And so at the most basic level, this means we haven't just been called into a new way of life. We have been given a new source of life. And Paul completes his thought now by saying that this new source of life, Christ in you, this is our hope of glory. Christ is in you, and this is the hope of glory. Just a final thought here, my friends. Now, in one sense, because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we have the absolute assurance of our hope of eternity. And Paul is saying to these believers, you know this, that you will fully come to know the glory of God in the future, in the future of eternity. You see, this is the hope of the not yet, the hope of what is to come. And this is good news. But this is not all Paul has in mind. Given the broader context of the full letter of Colossians, we know that he also is pointing to our experience of the hope of God's glory now, today, in the midst of life as it really is. You see, this isn't just the hope that we, that we will see the glory of God in the life that we one day will have, but that the glory of God will be seen in us right now in the midst of the life we do have. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Paul really captures this when he says, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. And then he says, we pray this, so that the name of our Lord Jesus, right? Think that the, the name of the Lord Jesus, the character, the nature, the work of Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question, my friends, is what does it look like for God to be glorified in us? What does it look like for us to be the bearers of the glory of God. Now, this is what Paul's going to spend the rest of the letter unpacking, and it's what we will continue with when we jump back in next week. Friends, thank you for sticking with me today. I love you, and I look forward to being back here with you next Sunday when we actually are going to wrap up chapter one and wrap up this section of Colossians. And we were going to, after this, we're going to be taking a break throughout the Advent season. And we'll be getting back into Colossians with the beginning of chapter two in January. But we're not going anywhere. That's just a little programming note for how things are going to lie ahead. Uh, we'll continue to record all the messages that we'll have through the Advent season. But until then, have a wonderful week. God bless. 